Welcome to Mortals, a podcast where we explore how humans have dealt with death throughout history. From embalming and epitaphs to mourning and morgues, we are taking a look at rites, rituals, and practices from around the world. Mortals podcast is for the morbidly curious or the curiously morbid. This week, we are talking about Roman funerals and burial practices. Now let's get on to the show! Boy, oh boy, folks, do I have uh, an episode for you. A good season closer, I feel like. Because today we are traveling back in time, once again, to one of my favorite periods of history, to ancient Rome. And there we will be discussing some Roman architecture, mourners for hire, graveyard sex workers, and funeral mimes. Ooh. Ooh. see that one coming. <laughs> I, not especially, no. The mimes, I think, was the one that threw me the most. <laughs> I think a good place to start is by giving a very brief summary of Rome. Because, you know, it's Rome. We all, we've all heard of it. We all knew it was there. But sometimes it's just kind of helpful to go over, you know, a, a couple of the details. And I don't know when the last time either of you... <laughs> thought about ancient Rome. <laughs> I think um, probably when we were doing the Alexander the Great episode. Ah, uh, yeah, very true. Very true. I did mention this to you earlier, but I was listening to a different podcast episode earlier, and they were right. mentioning uh, both Saturnalia and Lupercalia and yes. the Romans and all that. But that was just pure coincidence. I didn't intend to do that on the same day we were recording an episode concerning Rome. Well, still, we're going to kind of touch on some gods and goddesses and things, or at the very least, a religion. So yeah, let's dive into it, or at the very least, let's dive into a brief summary of Rome. The first time that we speak of Rome is in regards to the Republic, which was founded in 509 BCE, or before Common Era, when the Etruscan kings were expelled from the Italian peninsula and the monarchy was abolished. The Roman Republic consisted of elected magistrates or a senate, and there was no single head of government, and this worked out pretty well for them for a few hundred years, but during the late Roman Republic in 60 BCE, there was an unofficially established triumvirate, and what a triumvirate is is where three people were basically running Rome because they wanted to circumvent the senate. The triumvirate at this time this is the first triumvirate, and it included a guy named Lucius, a guy named Pompey, and this other guy who you may have heard of called Julius Caesar. Ultimately, this ah, triumvirate yes. failed. Yeah, you've probably heard of him, right? <laughs> I of the salad, right? Of course. <laughs> of the this, yeah, ex exactly. Of salad exactly. fame. Ultimately, this triumvirate failed, and a civil war ensued between Caesar and Pompey. So Caesar won the Civil War, which is why we talk about Caesar so much. Why Shakespeare wrote a play about Caesar and not Pompey. And so he won the Civil War and put himself at the top of the hierarchical ladder as a dictator with virtually unchallenged power and influence. 
So not only was he the leader of the country as like a political leader, he also put himself up at the top of the state religion as the Pontifus Maximus. A few years later, Julius Caesar is famously assassinated and the Senate kind of regains some control, but that's debated. But then a second triumvirate is created between a guy named Lepidus, a guy named Mark Antony, and Caesar's chosen successor, a guy named Octavian. Another guy you may have heard of. Once again, the two main characters of the triumvirate go to war with one another. Mark Antony loses, and Octavian takes the seat of emperor and calls himself Caesar Augustus. Yeah. Augustus firmly established the Roman Principate, and the Roman Empire would stick around for a few centuries before falling for a multitude of reasons that I won't bother to explain here. I'm going to say that again. So Rome was around for nearly a thousand years, which if you think about it is a bloody long time considering us hosts are currently living in a country that was established not even two centuries ago. And my understanding it's just, it's of just the Rome... Baby. I'm just a baby. (laughs) My understanding of Roman funerals and funerary practices is that not much changed in regards to how they treated the dead over that period of time. However, Roman funerary practices did change depending on who you were, what part of Rome you were living in, if you were a citizen, a non-citizen, or a slave. It is also important to note that Roman religion was not a static, singular thing. Again, depending on where you were living in the empire, when you were living in the empire, your occupation and your background determined which gods you were worshipping and may also affect your funerary rites. So for the sake of this episode, though, I'm going to be looking more at like the state-sanctioned religion and burial practices that came with it, starting at the top with the aristocratic elite, and moving our way down to the pores before tackling a few little additional fun facts about ancient Rome. Cool beans. How's that sound? Excellent. Yeah. Over the course of the Republic and Empire, Rome conquered many nations and cultures, with the Roman diaspora reaching all corners of the Mediterranean, through the Middle East, and up into the United Kingdom, into what is today known as Scotland. Damn. Along the way, Rome adapted many of the religions and cultural practices into their own faiths and everyday lives. And there was even like combination gods where the Roman gods and some local gods would sometimes like mix and become a whole new god, which was really interesting. Um, Like I know up in Northern England or what is today Northern England, uh, Jupiter Dolicanus was a combination of Zeus and a local, uh, I believe, Celtic storm god. Don't quote me on that. Um, But you see a lot of that, especially around the borders of Rome. Lots of different cults, mystery religions and things crop up over the course of the Republic and the Empire. And it's actually really interesting because you have this mass diaspora and all of these ideas and faith systems and things kind of interacting with each other and creating new baby faith systems and ideas and things (laughs) they're Um, reproducing yeah (laughs) it's all i can think of is like the gem fusions in steven universe and that it's just like the gods are just doing that they're just having like a sweet dance and then turning into (laughs) a fusion god (laughs) i am not familiar with steven universe so i will 
I, I have a rough idea, so I'll take your word. You need to look up uh, videos. It's that's a hilarious picture to put in my brain, Mariah. <laughs> Thank you. The culture that we probably see most often reflected in Roman culture is Greek. Uh, in general, Rome was a big fan of many Greek traditions. They adopted many of their gods and then changed the pantheon to suit their own needs and would then later on add like uniquely Roman gods and goddesses along the way. And then on top of them, they would add those new diasporic gods that they kind of pick up as they conquered nations around the Mediterranean. Um, we're going to learn a little bit of Latin today. So uh, as a whole, while some funerary rites that involve the body may uh, take place at home or in the Roman Forum, human remains were actually forbidden from being interred within the sacred boundaries of the city, which is also referred to as the pomerium. Huh. Please put a large asterisk next to this fact, though, because there were exceptions, primarily for politicians, because, of course. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And this practice of allowing only the most distinguished members of Roman society to be buried within the pomerium did wane during the imperial period, with many people simply being offered, like, an honorary monument, you know, a park bench, <laughs> you know? Um... <laughs> while the remains were buried elsewhere. But there were still a few emperors whose remains were interred around Rome, like supposedly Emperor Trajan's cremated remains were interred in uh, this monument in the middle of Rome called the Column of Trajan. Now let me reword that. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about like the ancient world that, you know, there was less people and things and, you know, the cities were smaller, but like Rome was huge. Like, the city was huge. There was estimations of about a million people living within the boundaries of the city in the early empire. Chonky for back then. Yeah. I mean, it's chonky for now. <laughs> like, that's still a big city, even by today's standards, I'd say. Yeah, because um, I think right now in Canada, it's considered, like, a city once it's surpassed, like, 100,000 people. So it's a, it's a big window up to, like, a metro it's not mm -hmm. quite like L.A., New York, Tokyo, that sort of level where there's like tens of millions of people who live in the place. Um, but I think that's just because urbanization wasn't quite what it is today. So yeah, TLDR, Rome was huge. And, you know, you have, with that many people, you have a lot of people to house and a lot of people who will all eventually die and you need to be able to deal with their remains. So with that kind of density, you know, it's probably best that human remains should be buried away from the living. And I intentionally mentioned housing and death in the same breath because those things are kind of like, like two sides of the same coin in ancient Rome. Basically, if you had a nice house in life, you will probably have a nice grave slash house in death. <laughs> Ah, nice house equals nice crypt. I guess yeah. that makes sense. Hello, yeah. MTV. Welcome to my crypt. I was just about to make that joke. <laughs> I was trying. I was. I was kept thinking of pimp my ride for some reason instead. Like, like Yo, pimp my ride out of the city because I'm not allowed to be buried on hallowed ground, which is such a flip from a lot of religions now. Pimp my crypt. There we go. <laughs> That's the joke. Um, so 
bringing it right back around. According to Roman historian John Patterson, who had an entry in one of my textbooks, which is where I ripped this quote from, he says, In many significant ways, the treatment of the Roman dead seems to have reflected their roles and activities when alive. These links between burial and social status can be seen most clearly in the case of Roman senators. So we know about Roman funerary practices from quite a few contemporary sources, including the writers of the time like Suetonius and the Greek writer Polybius, as well as depictions of funerary rites and processions on sarcophagi and frescoes. So our Greek Polybius wrote about the process of the theatrical funeral for a Roman senator, and I will share that with you now. Man, I love episodes like this where I just get to walk you through a funeral and it's going to have some weird shit in it. Like, these are my favorite. <laughs> Is this where the mime comes in? Oh, you betcha, Mariah. Amazing. Oh, yeah. Again, so just to remind you, we are starting with the Roman senator funeral up here. The top, top of the food chain. Uh, it starts with the deceased, the dead senator, being laid out in the atrium of his house. And the atrium was a room in the center of the house, generally on the ground floor where guests and clients were received. And a procession of friends and relatives, as well as musicians, funeral mimes or actors, and any paid mourners were set out towards the forum where a eulogy would be performed. The mimes were actors, and it's unclear if they were actually members of the family or if they were paid. There seems to be a bit of discourse surrounding that from what I could read. But they wore masks that represented the deceased and members of his family. So they were dressed in the insignia and ceremonial attire of his position when he was alive. That's an interesting way to use death masks. And also, can you imagine being like, oh, God, Uncle John has died. All right, let me get the death mask. I guess I'll go and prepare to do my mime shit. Oh, it gets even weirder. So, um... Not only were they dressed as the deceased and members of his family, uh, but they were instructed to act similarly to the dead, impersonating them and imitating their mannerisms, sometimes even mocking them. Oh my god. (laughs) So this is generally where the eulogy would be prepared. And, you know, some senators would use this as like, because, you know, oratorship and like being able to be a good speaker back then was like, a very, very refined and respected skill. Yeah. So to be able to deliver like a absolute banger of a eulogy, you could not only, you know, respect your ancestors, respect the deceased, respect your family, but you could also possibly, you know, politically tell a story or something that could move you up in the ranks of the Senate. This or- sounds familiar. <laughs> in what way? <laughs> Uh, from the the eulogy episode that I did, I mentioned a little bit about Rome and how people could use giving a eulogy at someone's funeral to their own advantage, uh, increasing their own status. So, Did you mention Julius Caesar in that regard? I think I did, but it's been a while and I haven't listened to that one lately, but I think we did. For, I guess, a, a brief refresher... And please go listen to that episode next, and you can learn a little bit more about the eulogy in detail. He was basically able to refine his lineage because he was supposedly descended from the Roman founder, 
Aeneas, who was a uh, soldier, or sorry, a general who fled from Troy. He was a Trojan general, and he fled after his defeat against the Greeks. And uh, the reason why Caesar wanted to claim him as his ancestor wasn't because he was some big hero or anything, which of course obviously helped, but also because Aeneas was the son of Venus. So he is basically creating this godly lineage for himself. Um, and with many of the uh, emperors, a lot of them were like this. There's a whole other episode that we could talk about, like the deification of emperors in ancient Rome. But through his eulogy, he was kind of able to solidify or at least claim this divine divine right. yeah i was gonna say this is leaning ancestry. into the divine right of kings territory yeah i yeah. i am the right person to rule because i have divine lineage yeah what's interesting about it being an emperor that's like oh no i'm just gonna claim claim lineage from a god as as the right to rule it just it reminds me of uh the japanese royal family claims a straight line from amaterasu who is like the ancient sun god Mm-hmm. mentioned in like the Nihon Shoki and the Kojiki, which are two very ancient folkloric te- texts that have some political weight in them for various reasons. Um, even though very much, if you look at paper at all of the royal family, because there aren't, emp- like, that the women don't get to rule, mm. there's a lot of men married in who become emperors who do not have a direct bloodline quote-unquote, from Amaterasu. So it's just, it's interesting that that's a thing that crops up kind of so far from each other. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of why, like, the Julia-Claudian dynasty gets so messy and crisscrossy. So kind of going back to, we kind of got a little off topic there about empire with emperors and deification, which possible future episode, but we'll deal with that then. But coming back to the senator's funeral, and, you know, he's still propped up in the Roman Forum. All of his friends are surrounded by him, or surrounding him, and they're, he's propped up in an ivory chair, and there's people in death masks either mocking him or praising him. But during this time, if the family or even the deceased prior to their death were worried about the turnout to their funeral procession, they could hire a bustuari who was a woman who frequented tombs. And these women were actually sex workers who did their business in the privacy of tombs, but also for a price would come to a funeral and act sad. Dang. Um, (laughs) That sounds like an easy job. Go to funeral, act sad. Yeah. uh, I mean, I don't think that paid all of their bills. What's that? Yeah. So once the procession had arrived at the Roman Forum... And the deceased was propped up in a chair, and the eulogy was delivered, and uh, everyone had donned their death masks, and the uh, bustuaries did their job and acted sad if they were there, and the mimes did their job and acted um, as they should. This procession would take the deceased uh, out of the primarium and to their family tomb, which would usually be um, outside the city limits, obviously. And sometimes they would be buried or interred, but more commonly in Rome, there was cremation, which was followed by a burial. Huh. I should note here that Romans, like I said, are generally cremated and the bones are generally collected afterwards and interred. 
But just as I mentioned at the beginning, this is not a universal practice. You still definitely find like sarcophagi and things over uh, both the Empire and the Republic. So these aristocratic tombs would, of course, once again, be outside the city, either where the family owned property or along the main roads leading in or out of Rome. And these were often clustered together with other family tombs of other aristic families, kind of like an aristocratic neighborhood, but for the dead. Huh. Can you imagine you get buried next to your, like, rival senator, just, like, in the afterlife, like, oh, no. Oh, no, I should have thought this out better. Shake skeleton fist. (laughs) Yeah. Gonna be arguing about that pear tree dropping its fruit on my side of the mausoleum. (laughs) So during the middle of the Republic, the size and outward ornamentation and visibility of these mausoleums along these main roads was deemed important to the wealthy. And in comparison, during the Empire, uh, the tombs kind of began to reflect the Hellenistic or Greek influence. And there seems to be a shift in these tombs as they're less ostentatious on the outside, but still very heavily decorated inside. And the family seemed to be less concerned with the tombs being visible from the main roads. Okay. Um, They also got a little bit smaller and more inclusive uh, with slaves and extended family and freedmen being entombed together more often in the later years. And this isn't for the reason that you would think it would be, because in general, you wanted your and your descendants to look after the tomb and continue to, to uh, carry out the funeral rites. Because as we're going to come to in a little bit, the funeral rites didn't just end at, like with like the feast and the sacrifices and things. There are a number of state holidays, basically, where you go and you honor the dead. You go and maintain the mausoleum. You go and make offerings of food and drink, etc. Um, so you were basically ensuring that your mausoleum and your tomb would be cared for if you had basically more people with more descendants to come and maintain it. So if you let your your freedmen, your freed slaves, and their children maintain it, then you would also be maintaining the process. That's some underhanded shit right there. (laughs) You will take care of my bones even in death. Yeah. I mean, and also, like, even their... it, It was assurance that even if they, at one point, like, their family line ended, then, you know, their freed slaves or the extended family would be able to look after them and maintain, you know, the... Maintain the tomb. Throughout both periods, both Empire and Republic, uh, these tombs depicted the victories and achievements of members of these aristocratic families, really leading to this reflection of housing in life and death. In general, uh, Roman monuments and tombs are great at telling us about the lives of the people interred there. You want to Google some interesting aristocratic tombs? I suggest the tomb of the Scipios, which is still visible by the Via Appia or the Appian Way. Huh. So yeah, that was kind of the rough burial rites for senators and wealthy members of aristocratic Rome. Um, but where did the middle class and the paupers end up when they shed their mortal coil? The middle class are honestly the ones I find the most interesting and kind of the sweetest. Because many tombs in Rome reflect the profession of the deceased, or in some cases depict it in sculpture. 
which you kind of had with the senators too, but they were kind of just like more interested in showing off wealth and kind of like they had the money to show off how artistic and smart and they would have like their achievements and things maybe like uh, carved in relief on their sarcophagus or on the walls of their tomb. But you know, the middle class rich guy stuff. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, it seems like your, your tomb is the ultimate brag at the end of your life. Yeah, and you also, like, very much to what Mariah said earlier, like, you might be, like, in the same, you know, for, like, like, Decropolis, basically, and the same neighborhood, quote-unquote, uh, as a rival. So, of course, you want to one-up them even in death, right? So, you gotta have, you know, the real marble. You gotta have the nice stuff to outshine them in death. Dinkelberg. Yeah, now that's some rich guy shit is making your death a pissing contest. Exactly. Yeah. That's, yes, perfect. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Which is why I find, I think, the middle class just kind of the sweetest. Because, okay, so for example, there is this tomb of a baker whose name was Virgilius Eurysaces, and it is in the shape of a granary, and it was decorated with a frieze that depicted him and his wife. That's cute. Like, isn't that really nice? Um, There was also a tomb of a celebrated charioteer named Alias Guta Calpurianus, which depicts a number of horses and a chariot, and uh, the tomb of Varia Zosime and Varia Helpistus depicts a forge and a number of blacksmithing tools, suggesting that the husband was probably a blacksmith. Oh, nice. And I really like that, because... It feels a lot more personal, you know, and some of these tombs were planned in advance of one's death, but it was found that the vast majority of the responsibility of caring for the deceased and arranging funeral matters, commemorating the dead and creating these carvings or inscriptions was left to the immediate family. So it was the husbands and wives, parents and children and siblings commemorating their loved ones and creating these like very personal (laughs) tombs and monuments and sculptures and i just find that really sweet it's like oh my dad was a baker i'll build him a granary (laughs) or you know whatever it was it feels a lot more congenial than hiring a mime to come and pretend to be your (laughs) dead relative in like a in like a spooky uh shia labeouf the musical roast I mean, who wouldn't want that? (laughs) And I imagine, you know, if most people, that was what the wealthy did. And, you know, we kind of, unfortunately, in most societies, we worship the wealthy. But yeah, I just, I find it really sweet. Because it was also these loved ones, as we kind of touched on already, who would carry out the annual rites that followed the death of a family member. Um, So there were annual ceremonies carried out in commemoration of the dead, including the Parentalia, which was a nine-day festival held in February, and Lemuria, which was held in May. And there is actually like a state-sanctioned, almost like I kind of, it kind of reminds me of like a statutory holiday, um, but there's something called the Ferial Duranum, and it is actually the list of like basically state-sanctioned festivals and holidays in Rome for a soldier. Um, but there were lots of different festivals and like kind of, uh, 
holidays, for, I guess for lack of a better word, throughout the year um, that were celebrated by the Roman people in different parts of the empire. But yeah, these two, the Patronalia and the Lumeria were the two that kind of most focused on the uh, maintenance and exoneration of the dead. But even like uh, at Saturnalia, which is uh, December 17th, um, even then you would go and, you know, put offerings and things and visit and, you know, much like many people do today. Yes, I have a, a something of a tangential anecdote. Um, so I've lived in a, in a number of countries. And in the last two that I lived in, Japan and Czech Republic, both of them, I had occasions in which I was like, I'm going to go for a walk and listen to podcasts and accidentally found my way into a massive cemetery of some kind, both times during grave cleaning holidays. And ah. so I'm just a fucking foreigner listening to podcasts, walking by whole families, cleaning gravestones and like lighting incense and leaving food and flowers and everybody's in their morning clothes. And I'm just like, I don't know how to get out of this graveyard. <laughs> In Japan, Japan it's Oban, Oban, right? Yes. Right. Yeah. I don't know what it's called in Czech Republic because I didn't know they had one and I don't speak Czech worth a damn. Um, I just know that in my ti- in the tiny town I was living, I still managed to stumble across the one graveyard <laughs> on the one day that they were doing grave cleaning. Mm. Well, it just kind of goes to show like, you know, we still, a lot of cultures around the world still practice that kind of, um, well, ancestor, like, uh, res- like respect for one's ancestors and paying respect for one an- one's ancestors is, you know, a very common through line, I think, through most cultures when it comes to funerary practices. Absolutely. Um, I know that, uh, like, shrines in homes and things in a lot of, like, Asian cultures is really big if someone's died. Yeah. Yeah. And it was very much the same in ancient Rome. So we that's kind of the the middle class were kind of my favorite. I think that they have the best tombs. Uh, but now we come to the paupers. So the paupers of ancient Rome, they lived in shacks around the city. They lived under the awnings of theaters and arenas. And they sometimes even lived in tombs around the city itself. At least the yes. weather is nice there. Yes. Yeah. So the graves of the poor of the poor were very simple. And from the perspective of the aristocratic writers of the time, anonymous, likely because the only evidence of their burial in a cemetery would be an amphora, or which is a type of jug or a tile. But there is also mention of mass graves, as well as a pauper's pyre, in which, you know, anybody could kind of be thrown on it. But then I've also read that you could also... It was very expensive to have a pyre at the same time, especially like one where you were fully, you know, roasted. And I was also reading that, I guess, you know, like the richer graves would also have like incense and like special oils and things, which also like A, made it smell better. And then B, also helped it burn faster. If you throw oil in the fire, it's going to be like a hotter. Yeah. Yeah. Extra flammable materials. So, yeah, there's the mass graves and the pauper's pyre. And it should also be noticed that there were epidemics during Rome's reign. Yeah. And so mass graves were 
more commonly used during those times, especially for the poor. And I think that the anonymous nature of these types of graves was a bit horrifying to many Romans, especially because, like for most of the population, when you died, you would generally get a monument or a tomb or a grave of some sort that like acknowledges your existence, even if you were gone, that said who you were, what you did, you were here once, and ideally, your descendants would continue to acknowledge your existence, come back a couple times a year to make offerings, to tidy up, etc. But like, if you were alone, or if you couldn't afford to have one of these made, even a simple one, you were kind of lost. Which is something that I can think like, that definitely scares me. Like if I had to, if the option to, like if the common practice was to have this grave where, you know, you were respected and it was maintained and you, you know, it was very personal. Yeah. But then to not be able to have that, you know. It's all about cultural norms and anything that's an aberration feels wrong, right? Mm -hmm. It feels disrespectful almost. Yeah, and no one wants to be forgotten. Not know? especially, no. I don't think anybody wants that. <laughs> and so we make ourselves unique tombs. Do it in the shape of a granary. Carve some history books onto our tombstones. My favorite is when people have their recipes carved. Like their secret yes. recipes Ooh. on their tombstones. Like, stop asking. I go to the graveyard to get the best recipes. (laughs) Yep. I think there's a blog out there, a blog or an Instagram of somebody who is specifically going around and baking dishes found like the recipes from gravestones. That's cool. I've definitely seen something about that. Yeah. Yeah. If I can find it, I'll, we'll include it in the show notes. And if not, uh, happy hunting. (laughs) It exists somewhere. It's out there. And if not, go start one. (laughs) That's kind of all I have to say about Roman funerals. And I feel like we could have gone a lot deeper in some respects. Because we kind of just talked about, like, the logistics. Um, But there is, like, a whole thing that we could talk about. Like, well, I tried tried really hard to avoid straying into discussions about religion. Because at one point I almost was kind of considering doing a master's degree on Roman or religious Roman diaspora along the borders of the empire. Cause that shit is super interesting to me. I just think, I think this kind of goes back to a little bit of the discussion we had in the eulogies episode, but um, I think it's so, I don't know what the right word is, but the fact that you use, especially the, the upper class and the senators using their funerals as a point to say, this is what I did. And probably in a lot of cases to the point of exaggeration uh, in order to like bring their themselves in death or their families in their death, um, some amount of prestige and status. I just find that really, uh, that makes a lot of sense to me that they would do that. And I think it's funny. <laughs> it's, it's like, of course you would do that, you freaking politician. <laughs> that sounds like a lot like what some sorry american listeners uh like american politicians would do yes (laughs) the more things change the more they stay the same right exactly politicians be politicianing 
uh, forever. Especially in places where there's like a cult of personality, which yes. with like celebrity worship and all that kind of stuff in the in the US in particular, I'm not saying other places are immune to it, but it's particularly uh, rampant in the United States. I feel like that is something that could could be that is a practice that could literally be happening in the United States in the here and now. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I feel like as far as cult of personality, like if I think about like Julius Caesar, I feel like a, that's what a lot of these emperors had around them. And, you know, they didn't have the Internet, but, you know, you never see an elderly statue of Caesar Augustus. Right. So and he lived to be, I think, like he 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 lived, I think, past 70, like which was, you know, not uncommon back then. But the fact that, you know, all of the statues and things that you see of him are, you know, when he's young and strapping and strong. And you were able to build this public-facing persona and personality based on not only, like, obviously your exploits still matter and, like, what you actually do still very much matters even today. But you can also, you know, soften the edges and, you know, kind of blur those actions through, you know, a fancy speech or uh, portraying yourself in a certain way to the public. Yeah. So, yeah, it's like exactly I'm I'm waxing poetic, but Mariah was shortened to the shortened to the point, you know, the more <laughs> the more things change, the more they stay the same. Exactly. Fake it yeah. till you make it. <laughs> Yeah, well, it was the same when Alexander the Great died, right? Is that all of a sudden his, like, whole guard who had, who were trying to split up his empire all tried to turn his memory to their advantage to claim more of the empire and that there was a cult of personality mm-hmm. around him in which it was important for world leaders to make a pilgrimage to where Alexander's body was kept. Julius Caesar was among the leaders who idolized Alexander the Great, despite it being hundreds of years later. Absolutely. So that kind of that monument and death and that continuation beyond death in a culture like that, that really uh, values policy and movement and power politically, it makes sense. Well, this kind of comes back around to like the deification of emperors, right? You know, they're they're solidifying their cult of personality by having a temple built to them where you have to go and make offerings and things like that. So, yeah, that's all I really have to say. Well, that's not all I have to say about uh, Roman uh, funerals and burial practices. There is a lot more to say, but that's kind of the sweet and short version of it. There is a lot written about... Uh, Roman funerary archaeology and uh, Roman practice, burial practices and funerary rites. There's lots of resources out there if you want to learn more. I may pick this topic up again in the future. I may not. Who knows? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Rome has existed for a long, long ass time. It's around for a long time and they uh, were not a homogeneous society, a homogenous society. They were a lot of different societies under living under the Roman roof, which makes for a lot of really interesting 
history, and archaeology lessons. That it does. And like the Roman Empire, mortals will continue to be around for a long time, but this is our last uh, special topic of season two. So next episode you'll hear from us will be our season two wrap-up. If you have any questions or queries or comments for us, please hit us up, Twitter, Instagram, on our Patreon, if you want to join that and help us continue making this show. Uh, That would be great. We would love to hear from you. We will all see you next time. Mortals Podcast is created, hosted, and edited by three morbidly curious individuals, Christia, Mariah, and Janine. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast Mortals, on Instagram at Mortals underscore podcast, and on our website, mortalspodcast.com. Show your support, access bonus content, and help us keep ads out of your ears by joining our community at patreon.com slash mortalspodcast. Our music is A Mermaid's Eulogy by Etienne Roussel. Thanks for listening, mortals. Take care of yourselves out there. Ancient Rome. Bomb, bomb, bomb. It's not like home. Bomb. Bom bom Coliseum. <laughs> well, there's our stinger. There's the stinger. There's the stinger.